This is an ABC podcast. Last week, the England football team beat Denmark to set up an historic Euro 2020 final against Italy. This is momentous because it will be England's first major final since 1966. Yes, you are listening to This Work in Life, and I am Lisa Leong. You're in the right place. The Connection is my guest today. Owen Eastwood is a performance coach for the England football team. He's also worked with the British Olympic team and New Zealand's All Blacks. Owen shares ancient Maori beliefs and wisdom with high-performing teams in not just sport, but also business, the arts and the military. He's documented this in his book, Belonging. I spoke to Owen last week, just before England's win. Owen, what is Whakapapa? Well, Whakapapa is a Maori spiritual idea about our place in the world. Having said that, I've worked with teams all around the world and I've found that there are very similar ideas in in Chinese culture and North American cultures. So I I believe this is a universal idea, really. But it's quite simple, but it's also powerful. It's just this idea that each of us are part of an unbreakable chain of people uh, with our arms interlocked with each other going back all the way to our first ancestors and to our origin story, but also going into the future to the end of time. And actually, when I speak about this in front of audiences, I do imagine and think of my ancestors, but I also think of my my children are eight and 13, but I actually think of their children and their grandchildren. And sometimes when I'm talking about it, I actually feel we are all standing together in this line. And I actually... Is a, it's like a physical feeling I get from it. And Owen, why is it such an important concept when it comes to teams at work? It's a way of elevating the experience beyond me and beyond today. It connects me to the people around me, makes us feel we're part of the same tribe. Um, it connects me to the heritage of, of this enterprise, this business. It gets me highly motivated about the future because I can see that the sun isn't going to be us forever. So it gives me a little bit of urgency, like I want to leave a legacy here. I want to do something. I want to make sure that people are proud of us and that the people who come after look at us and say thank you. And they have positive memories of us. So I think if, it, if it's utilised in the right way, it gives us a real strong sense of belonging, gives us a strong sense of who we are, what makes us special and what makes us different. And it can really motivate us to do a great job together. And what happens when it's missing in workplaces? When it's missing in workplaces, I think it can become highly transactional. I think it's not really, individuals don't have a deep sense of belonging there. They, everything is about the work. The work is the hero. The process is the hero. The people aren't the hero. And, you know, you get high turnovers. I think that's an example I think it's hard to have the same level of psychological safety when people don't feel a personal sense of belonging. So I think you, that compromises the culture and the environment as well. So, you know, whakapapa is just it's, it's an idea, but it's a, more of a universal idea that, you know, let's connect people to each other and let's connect them to something bigger than ourselves. And then let's have a wonderful experience together. And in fact, you're sort of bringing this link into the work that you're doing now with corporates and, uh, and, and sports teams as well, it seems. Absolutely. I think I really do believe it is a frame applicable to any group of people. And I've worked with businesses where they talk about their values, um, but there's no stories attached to them. 
they, they, they don't know really where they come from. And sometimes they don't even really understand their origin story. I mean, why did people come together in the first place to actually start this enterprise? So, you know, I've worked with an investment bank, for example, in London, where everything started to feel a little bit flat and one-dimensional in terms of values, in terms of the cultural architecture. So what we actually did is we, we, we recreated the whakapapa. And to the point where I actually went and met the actual founders of the bank who were still around and asked them, why did you do this? What did you set it up? And it was, it was amazing because part of their culture was we are outsiders. We like to see ourselves as, you know, different, having a, in a different perspective. But no one really understood why that came about. And actually, when I spoke to the founders of the bank, they told me that they didn't never wanted to be a bank at all. But once they started um, lending money to, to people in their community, the central bank contacted them and said, what you're doing is... Uh, illegal, you need to stop doing it. The only way you can do that is if you're a bank. And so they sort of were forced into a position where, okay, well, we do want to carry on because we're actually helping people in our community. We're giving them money they wouldn't have access to otherwise. So, okay, whatever, we'll go get a banking license. And actually, once you understand that, that makes your cultural identity around being an outsider a lot more potent. So, I, yeah, I, I think it's really useful just to look back into the heritage of where we come from. And I always think about values as really being shorthand for our identity story. You know, they, they are the things that this group of people value. So in order to understand that, you really need to know what the stories are behind it. And so what could we learn from Maori culture about how to be or bring awareness to the us? Well, we do have this preset way of understanding the world which is around us and them. And I think what leaders can learn from not just Maori culture, but other indigenous cultures is that if leaders build an inclusive story of us, then that is a wonderful way to get the most out of a diverse group of people. So what, what tends to happen is that if you've got a diverse group of people together and the us story is either absent or appears to be really around a dominant clique, which you and I were lawyers, maybe white, Anglo-Saxon males, that seems to be the people who really dominate in this group. And the us story seems to really be about them. All the photos on the wall are them. The language is theirs. Um, it doesn't really feel that inclusive. So for me, that's, that's not great leadership, really. I think leaders, what you want to be thinking about is let's create a story of us, which every single person, no matter what category of identity they have, feel part of it. And so can you tell me a positive story about an us? Well, at the moment, I'm working with the British Olympic team and we have 400 athletes going to Tokyo literally flying this week. And we would be the most diverse group of people or team in the United Kingdom, okay? And pro again, just about every category of identity, we would tick a box of, I would say, so what we've done in the last 12 months is to make sure that every single person in our team feels included, feels this is us and is inclusive of them. So, for example, we created a, quite a beautiful, emotional, animated film of our ancestors. And what we did is we highlighted our first female athlete, which was Charlotte Cooper in 1900, our first black athlete, Harry Edward in 1920, our first female black athlete, 
Anita Neal, Mexico, 1968, our first Muslim athlete, our first Sikh athlete, etc. Our first openly gay athlete, our first in, the, in Rio, we had our first single-sex married couple who won gold medal together for the British hockey team. Um, so what, what we've done is we've given equal weight to all these ancestors, everybody, the whole whakapapa. So anybody coming into our team, and we've had wonderful feedback from the athletes, is that you are welcome, you belong here. This is a safe place for you. This is a place where you can thrive. And so the story of us is at the centre of that for them, and they do feel that sense of belonging. What about somebody listening who might be thinking, uh, you know, I can sort of imagine that for sports teams, but I can't imagine that in my workplace. Do you have a story about an us that was created in a workplace? Uh, yeah, I, I have. I've, I worked with a business which was very traditional Anglo-Saxon male, to be honest, you know, just, just was. And they were very proud of the diversity in terms of recruitment, but it wasn't translating into an inclusive culture. And they asked me to get involved um, and, and have a look around and have, have a sniff around <laughs> what I do. And I did that and I, and I reported back to them that there are a lot of people who actually don't feel they can be themselves in your culture. That's from the conversations I've had. And they were a bit shocked by that because they had all the policies in place and they had a diversity and inclusion officer in place. So we thought we'd sorted this out. So what I actually encouraged them to do was the leaders to go around the business and just ask people from the whole diversity of their um, staff, what's it like for you being in this environment? What are the things that we do here that hold you back from really fulfilling your potential? If you were the leader here, what would you do differently? What, what do we need to shift here to get the best out of everybody? And that, they're very simple questions, aren't they? But they really unlocked a completely different way of looking at things. You know, for example, people saying that, you know, you are measuring us with all this, you know, digital analysis data every day about our performance. But in our culture, we don't think about performance like that. We think about performance in terms of talent and impact on people. And if I even had that with athletes, like you're measuring us with GPS, how far we run, that's actually, in our culture, God gave us this skill and this talent and we've got an obligation to express it. But these are things you don't measure or you don't seem to value. You seem to value other things. Also, people saying, for example, you've got a cult, the culture here is about people challenging each other. And, you know, Anglo-Saxon people are quite good at that. In our culture, we have been brought up from day one to never challenge anybody who is higher in the hierarchy than us. So we cannot do what you say we should do. And then people think that we don't have any views or people think that we aren't intelligent or whatever because we don't speak up. But this isn't an environment where we can just be ourselves. So you need to find a different way to get the best out of us. So they're quite simple questions, but that became absolutely transformative. And then they went right back and said, okay, no, 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 we need to change this. Why don't you tell me about how your ancestors used visioning in navigation, Owen? My Maori ancestors came from a little island called Raratea, which is now in French Polynesia. And they, they navigated their way from this island, which is 64 square miles, uh, north to Hawaii and discovered Hawaii about 1,200 years ago, and then south 1,000 years ago, all the way down to New Zealand, Aotearoa. But they also went all the way east to South America, They've found artefacts of theirs uh, in California and there's some contention around also potential artefacts in Alaska. But the amazing thing was, not only, they not only did that, they came all the way back to that tiny island. 
And they didn't have a written language, they didn't have any instruments, and they didn't have any maps. It was all based on star navigation and their intimate understanding of the sea. So that, those exploits are now being written about all over the place, like that was possibly the greatest navigating in human history. But the, the, the key thing to answer your question about visioning is that they did, didn't just decide to do it. What happened is, and I think this is actually quite a good metaphor for, for businesses, is that their, their island became unsustainable. Their way of life and the place they were became unsustainable. You know, there was climate change, there was warring um, with other islands and tribes. There was, the resources weren't sufficient. So what happened for this group of people when the sun shone on them was that this is not sustainable to stay here. We have to move. And they didn't know, they'd never been to these places, but they created a vision in their minds that we need to look somewhere else and we need to start a new life there, which is bigger, got more resources, more space, but it also needs to have, you know, ready food supplies in terms of fisheries and everything else. So they visioned what that would be. And then they used all the clues around them in the environment, including the migratory patterns of, of birds and whales to go south, which took them to New Zealand. So I think it's a powerful metaphor that, just the power of visioning and then the idea of just using all the clues around you to work, work out your own map as to how to get there. And so practically how would you use visioning with corporate teams? Well, I've, I've got a sort of simple approach to thinking about great cultural architecture. The first question for me is, what's our purpose? And sometimes that's quite inspirational, sometimes it's not, but that's the place we need to start. Why are we here? What is the impact we actually want to have on the, on the world? Um, once we, you know, really interrogate that, then what happens is that we then do the visioning. We create a vision of, okay, that's why we're here. This is the impact we want to have on the world, have on people. Okay, let's visualise the hell out of it. How what far world? out are we talking? Well, I, I think you look, you're talking short term, you're talking medium term, you're talking and long term. But for me, when I'm working with teams and businesses, we tend to operate around the three or four year period of visioning. Um, but we can get excited about a 10 year vision as well. But that starts to become a little bit unstrategic because it's so far removed. But so that, that's what we'd say. We, 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 we visualize the hell out of it. And when we're visioning it, we're not just visioning an outcome, we're visioning also the impact we will have on people and we're visioning the culture and the way we're going to do this together. So, we, you know, we would, and great sports teams, New Zealand All Blacks, for example, would spend a day on this type of thing as well. So we create a space to just visualise. And there's great neurosciences to the power of this, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well. So we create a vision and it's only after the vision that we then create a plan to realise it. And that obviously is our strategy. And then the final thing that I would do with teams is then design our culture because our culture needs to be able to deliver on that vision. Um, you know, I don't believe that we have a culture model that everybody should just copy. I think our culture needs to be fit for purpose as to what we're actually trying to do. And so, so it's the purpose into the vision, into a strategy, and then we design our culture. And that's the way I go about it. And you make an interesting point in your book that it's about going back to the vision often, especially leaders repeating that vision. Mm, it's so powerful. I think that is a trait of very good leaders is that everything that is being done on a day-to-day -day basis is connected to the bigger vision of what we're trying to achieve. You know, I mentioned some you know, great sports coaches, Steve Kerr, Pete Carroll, that, that every training session, every meeting, they are explaining that 
what we're talking about or doing today will enable us to move closer to our vision. And I think, again, for businesses, what an amazing opportunity that is. You know, people are so busy. People are pursuing all these tasks. Um, they're being followed up on all these action points. How often are we actually saying, hey, thank you. Thank you, because you've just taken us a step closer to this vision and achieving our purpose. We, we sort of somehow get a bit disconnected from those things. And I think that compromises our, you know, motivational uh, energy in an organisation. And do you have an example of a business leader who managed to uh, create a vision for their organisation and, and communicate it and then bring it to life? Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky to have quite a few of those examples. And sometimes I get, I get brought in at the startup stage as well. And I think that's actually wonderful because we can get very, very busy and we can just get a little bit tunnel visioned as well. So if you actually carve out the time as a startup to just vision, you know, the direction we could go in, and then and then you become less reactive to different opportunities flying at you from different directions, you've got a bit more of a focus. And that, that can help you in multiple ways. So both in terms of startups, that visioning, and it's very, you know, rewarding, isn't it, when you, you're dealing with someone and four years down the line, that vision's being realised. Um, you know, with sports teams, it is just a completely mandatory part of the way we set ourselves up is that we spend time visioning, we revisit our vision, we modify it and adapt it as we go. You know, I'm working with England football team, I've worked with them the last four or five years. You know, we've got a vision of what we're trying to achieve. You know, we, we, we've got a semi-final tomorrow night, we're getting closer to, to that vision being realised. Uh, but whatever happens in the next week, um, there's a World Cup next year and we'll go and spend time revisiting that vision and, and trying to work out the, what are the things that are getting us closer and what are the things that are holding us back. Can you tell me about the concept of rehearsing adversity? Well, it comes back to the, to the visioning we spoke about before. It's interesting, athletes are very proficient or elite athletes are very proficient at visualisation, as I imagine a lot of other high performers are. You know, they have incredible skill at visualising their performance. And, you know, one of the points I make is that I think like teams should be much better at doing that. Again, when you visualize something, you create neural pathways, you're effectively creating forward memory. So when that moment arrives, you're actually got a ready response. You don't have to make a quick, hasty decision under pressure. So in terms of rehearsing adversity, if we just rehearse everything going spectacularly well, that's not actually brilliant preparation. Just as an athlete would rehearse some adversity in their performance, maybe a swimmer's um, visualising their Olympic 100-metre race and they visualise themselves hitting the, you know, the, 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 you know, the flags on the side or whatever and it, and, and it disrupts them and how they would deal with that. Similarly, there, you know, I give some good examples, I think, in belonging of situations where people know there's going to be some adversity coming up. You know it's going to happen. And they actually create space to as a team, go through it and how we would respond to it. And in fact, you know, with the football team before this Euros, we took half a day and we had four scenarios where things could go a bit haywire for us. And we worked through them and we did it before the Russian World Cup as well. And that allows us when something like that happens or close to it, okay, we know how we're going to deal with it. When it comes to the concept, you know, any of it, uh, but particularly fucker papa. What is the aha moment for people? What is missing from corporate culture that you think this approach brings in your experience? I think Whakapapa's potency is twofold. 
One is that it's a really quite a simple but powerful way of explaining that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And again, as I said before, even if our story up to this point isn't exactly inspiring, it still is a frame which gives us an opportunity to do something different and better ourselves. So that's one part of it. I think the second part of it is that that era of whakapapa is essentially a very deep sense of belonging. And that is a human need, which is often unfulfilled in a workplace. And, you know, and this is one of the reasons I wrote Belonging is because in elite sporting environments in particular, so much time is invested in making sure that you feel respected, that you feel that you have the right to be here, that you belong here, that we trust you and we just want the best for you. And I, I and, and we invest so much time in, why, why don't we do that in other workplaces? You know, I've got three siblings, you know, they all go to different workplaces and I want them to have those same experiences. And why, why is our leadership so enlightened at, at that elite level, yet so many people have frustrating or disappointing or very transactional work experience? I, I don't get it. The, the, the science, the insights are exactly the same. And so if you're talking to a leader how would they, as an individual, engender more belonging, more whakapapa? Well, there's two things. Belonging is driven by, first of all, belonging to what? It's all very well saying you belong here, but I need to know what is it exactly I'm belonging to? And that's where our us story is so critical. So what often happens is that people come in and, and there is no us story. No one has actually taken any time to explain this is our origin story. This is our purpose. This is why we're here. This is what success looks like for us. And this is what um, disappointment looks like for us. And this is our vision going ahead of what we want to achieve. And we want you to be a big part of it. So this is our story. And we want you to play a, a beautiful role in that so so that's often lacking but then again if you go into certain elite environments they do so much induction it's so emotionalized and ritualized it's amazing you know it is like a, a moment in life you never forget but again that's not recreated so the first part of belonging I think is what do we belong to and I just think leaders have got to really step up and make sure there is a powerful story and it's, it's not about a branding positioning. It's about a genuine, authentic story of who we are. And then the second part of it is sending belonging cues to people when they arrive. In particular, that's the most receptive moment they will have. That's when they're most open-minded about this place. So if I look you in the eye and I say, we're so pleased to have you. You're a star. You're going to thrive here. You bring so much to this team. You need to understand that you belong here. And we want you to feel safe. And if you don't, we want you to tell us why and we'll help you. Just signals like that. Not only that, though, from a hierarchical figure, but from your peers. We, you know, we want a process where your peers are also, they take you out for lunch, whatever it is, and explain to you that, you know, we're here for you as well. This is what we love about the place. This is what you should also know about the place. So you just get this beautiful warmth of feeling that, you know, people actually care about me, that I'm welcome here. You know, they seem to see me. I feel like I fit in here. And once you feel like that, I believe that is when your potential gets unlocked. But if you don't feel that, if you feel like an outsider, you feel like you don't really belong, I think you may well marinate in anxiety for a long period of time um, and not really be able to be yourself and perform to your best. 
Thank you so much, Owen. Oh, what a wonderful interview. Your questions are amazing. Oh, thank you. Owen Eastwood. And Owen's book is Belonging, The Ancient Art of Togetherness. And before we go, I want to tell you about our live show, Risky Business, at the Melbourne Podcast Festival on July 31st. Come along to hear how Mark Brandy went from crime fighter to crime writer and how Kate Morris built her multi-million dollar beauty business from her garage with just a $10,000 loan. And wait, there's more. You can even win a freebie. Just tell us about the biggest risks you've taken in your career. You'll find the entry form and more information on the Radio National homepage. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.